All right, so we're going we're gonna to look at various scriptures this morning. I want to ask you to start off, won't you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'll just quickly recap what we're doing, where we're coming from. Um, if you don't know me, uh, my name is Paul. Uh, my wife Kate is sitting over there with our, our littlest one, our number five. So we have some experience with, with kids, shall we say. Um, it's really, really been a privilege in the last four years to lead this congregation, and uh, we just love being here, and God's been so kind to us and gracious to us as we formed part of this community. So this morning, we're going to be speaking about hope, but we're also going to be speaking a lot about faith, and so the title of what I'm speaking on is A Faith That Leads to Hope, A Faith That Leads to Hope. All right, and I want to just remind us where we're going, because two weeks ago, I hadn't actually planned this sermon yet, and I just, when I went back, realized how beautifully it tied in with what I did in the first week, which was the exegesis of Matthew chapter 6, which is all about anxiety and worry. And the big take-home from that first week when we came back together, the big take-home was that if God can sustain life, surely He can look after you. If God can create life and sustain the universe and create all of that, surely He can look after you. That's the whole idea of that second part of Matthew chapter 6 around anxiety. The argument is from the greater to the lesser. If God can do all of this, then surely God can do this, which is the small thing of clothing you and feeding you and making sure that you have enough finance, all these other things that come in and rush in with anxieties. So that was where we started. And then last week, as we launched One Hope, so the new name of the church and all the reasoning behind that, Ollie spoke so beautifully and so vulnerably, which I so appreciate in the pulpit, just being honest and real, showing so vulnerably about hope and hopelessness. And the, and the big idea from last week, if I could sum it all up, was that hope in an earthly sense is something that we have no certainty about. So we say, well, I hope something's going to happen, which really means I'm not sure. I don't have certainty that it's going to happen, and I kind of am holding on hoping that it will, whereas biblical hope is entirely different. Biblical hope is based on the word of Christ. It's based on the word of our Father. And so there's a certainty with which we hold on to scriptural hope, which has nothing to do with earthly kind of wishful thinking. All right, does that catch you up? So if you knew... Welcome, that was for you, so that you know kind of where we are in our series. And this morning, I'm going to speak about a faith that leads to hope. Now, I had to think really hard at the beginning of this week, because in my mind, often faith and hope are kind of synonyms. They're often just interchangeable. You could put them in, in any which way. So 1 Corinthians 13, 13 is really helpful when it comes to thinking like that, because it says, so now, faith, hope, and love abide. These Three, but the greatest of these is love. So the Greek here, if you go and look at the original Greek, is extremely distinct. They're different words. They mean different things. So what I want you to do this morning, I'm going to be a little bit interactive for a couple of minutes. I want you for a minute to grab whatever you write on. So if it's a phone, a tablet, or your paper and pen, grab it. And I want you to write down right now, what do you think is the difference between hope and faith? What is the difference between hope and faith. Write it down. Go for it. No one's going to mark you. You're not going to share it with anyone. Another 15 seconds or so. The clock ticking down on your exam.
Okay, so hopefully you've, you've thought a little bit. What, what makes the difference? What's faith? What's hope? And why does it matter? So I want, to, I want to look at those two concepts. I want to look at them through the lens of Scripture. And then I want to end off this morning just asking, well, what, is that, what does that change about our lives? It's great. I mean, it's nice to have fancy definitions. But what does it actually matter to our lives? So let's, let's talk, first of all, about faith. Most of us in the room this morning would claim to have a faith. All right. Most of us would have faith in Jesus. We'd say, I have put my faith in Jesus, which we throw out as a, a casual phrase. But what we really mean is that we've realized that Paul can't save Paul. Or put your name in there, can't save your name in there. Right? That's what you're really saying. I've put my faith in Christ. I don't have the ability and the effort to save myself. Or maybe the way that you think about faith is more with conversations with other people. And so someone will say, well, I have put my faith in Allah. You've put your faith in Christianity. What makes, it, what makes yours real and mine not real? Or someone, this is maybe more common, will say, I have no faith at all. I don't believe in God. So therefore, they'll say, I have no faith. Right? So what do you believe? And at, at, at its essence, this is what faith is. What do you believe? So it's taking everything, if you would Permit me a, a metaphor. It's taking everything in front of you, all the information that you can assimilate through your schooling, through your, your family background, through your own brain and your ticking of your brain at night, whatever it may be. It's taking all of that information and then putting three tables in front of you. There's the table of truth. So you say, right, I believe this and this and this and this. This is truth. And you put it on the table that you believe is true. And then there's a table of uncertainty or things you're unsure of. So this is things like the Americans landing on the moon. Did it actually happen? I'm not so sure, Lisa. You guys have claimed it. So this is the, this is the unsure table. And then there's a table where you put things on which you believe are false. Right? Those are the basic three categories that we're putting information into. And faith is taking what we believe to be true on the table of truth and saying, I believe those things over the things I believe are false. So even atheists, if you think about it correctly, are actually full of faith. They're full of faith because they, they want to juxtapose faith with fact. No, we all believe that what we believe is fact. I believe completely that the evidence that over, is overwhelming around Jesus Christ is a historic figure. If you go and do your research, you'll find the same conclusion. There's so much fact around Jesus Christ, but it's not faith versus, versus fact. We all are just believing different things to be true, and then we put our faith in those things that we believe are true. Are you with me? They just believe differently. Now, what happens with what you believe or your faith? What happens with what you believe? If you put things on that table you begin to form a certain understanding of the future because of what you believe, right? It in, informs you. If you believe in a God, small g, if you believe in a God, well, what kind of God do you believe in? It profoundly impacts your future. If you believe in a God who is good and kind and benevolent, that affects your future. It affects the way you see your life panning out. If you believe in a God who is angry or cruel or is keeping tabs and wants to, wants to the first available opportunity to like lay the smack down on you, that profoundly changes the way that you view the future, right? So what you believe, and you're going to see where I'm going hopefully at some point in this sermon, so stick with me. If you don't believe in any God, 
at all, so you'd claim, you'd claim to be an atheist, well, what is that, how does that affect the way you see the future? How does it affect the way you feel about living your life? If there's no future judgment, if there's no actual ethical code that we can point to and say God has commanded us to live like this and it's just some construct of different social people coming together and saying this is helpful, don't kill each other or whatever else, it changes completely how you live your life. What do you pursue? Well, if I have nothing at the end of it and I'm just going to be snuffed out, man, I'm going after earthly pleasures like you've got no idea. Every, every earthly pleasure you can give me, give it to me. I want it because my life is going to just be snuffed out at the end. It affects how I treat others, all of these things. And so all these things that we believe have faith for profoundly impact how we see or view the future. And you can think of a thousand different analogies from your own life, from our country, from your kids or from whatever that will prove that to you. Now, Scripture calls these two things belief, it calls faith. And what you believe about the future, it calls hope. So if you put your faith in God, there's a hope for the future. If you put your faith in yourself, there might well be a hopelessness about the future. Do you see how they work in this symbiotic relationship? Because Scripture teaches that they are co-joined and that the one profoundly affects the other. So let's turn to Hebrews 11. We're going to read quite a lot out of this very famous text. Do you know Hebrews 11, the stories of faith? When you're feeling discouraged, this is a great place to go. When you're feeling like your life is hard, this is a great place to go. When you're feeling like temptations are overwhelming you and it feels like you don't know how to cope with them, go and read about these old saints in Hebrews chapter 11. It's powerful. Chapter 11 verse 1 in Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. So this author in Hebrews is saying, it's an assurance. What is an assurance? I have confidence. I am assured. I know that this is true. But look at how he links it to hope. So what I know is true. I have faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. They haven't happened yet, so his confidence is leading him to think, well, because I believe this, this is what's going to happen in the future. Are you guys out there this morning? You're all very quiet. Anybody? Hello? Amen. There we go. Thank you. So encouraging, you guys. Wow. Awesome. So, thank you, Grace. Hope is what is still coming. It's being convinced that what is coming because of what I believe. So here's a very simple metaphor to help explain it to you. Let's say a father goes to his son or his daughter, who's, I don't know, six or seven years old, and says, tomorrow I'm taking you to cricket. And this kid loves cricket. They, they've been longing to go to cricket. They haven't, every time they've asked, the dad said, you're not old enough, you're not old enough. Now the father says, I am going to take you to cricket. What does that little kid, in a, in a healthy relationship, what does that little kid do? He or she believes the father. They put faith in the words that the father has spoken to them. But then they start to jump up and down for joy. And they're jumping up and down on the spot. Have you ever seen a little kid celebrate? It's awesome. 
right? What is that moment? What is that emotional moment? That's hope. They've, they, they haven't gone yet. They're not there. But that's the hope that they're going because they trust the words of the Father. The Father's spoken to them. They believe the Father. And so in hope, they're looking forward to the fact that tomorrow, in their mind, they are going to the cricket, right? Or the rugby or the ballet or whatever floats your metaphorical boat. Ha, ha, ha. Yes, I know. Thanks. So great to still be with you this morning. Warm up slow, the beginning of the year. So this is, what I'm, this is the point I'm trying to make. And I know it was long-winded because I, I wanted to fight for it a little bit. But faith leads to hope. Faith points to a past reality. It has already happened. You can't, you can't faith what hasn't happened yet. It's, it's a past reality. It's, it's what do I believe in? Facts that I believe in. Hope points to the future reality because of what you believe. Does that make sense? Okay, now we're going to get into Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm just going to go quickly through here. And I want you to see some of how the author links faith, hope, faith, hope. It's like his, it's like his jab and his uppercut. They come in together. So let's go verse 2. For by it, what's he talking about? Faith. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, and we're not just lizards that climbed out of some primordial soup, and we just ended up here today. We're not that. So that what is seen was not made out of things, was, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Verse 4 and 5, he speaks about Abel, and he speaks about Enoch, and then verse 6, I want you to notice. And without faith... It is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Duh. Do you still say duh? Like obvious? Still there? Obvious? It's like if you, can't, if you don't believe in God, how are you going to draw near to a God that you don't believe exists? And then he says this thing, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you see the hope? So you believe that God exists, you're able to draw near Him because you believe it, you have faith, and therefore He has rewards for those who seek Him, the future hope. Skip down to verse 8, and this, Ollie spoke about this last week, about Abraham, who the, the other scripture that you read last week was like, he's as good as dead. He hoped against hope, he's 100 years old, how's he going to have a child? Hebrews 11 records it like this, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of, to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And as he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now why did he do that? Why did he place his faith and his belief in God? Verse 10, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Hope. He had a hope in God. Or look at Sarah in verse 11 and 12, and then skip down with me to verse 13. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. 
For people who speak thus make it clear that they, are, that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, if they were looking for some earthly homeland, they could have just gone home. They could have just gone back to the inheritance that they had already, that they left behind. But, as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then perhaps for me, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture in the whole of the Bible is Hebrews 11 and from verse 32. And I want you to ask this question. I want this question to be reverberating in your mind as I read this text over us this morning. Why? Why in the world would you live like this? Why in the world would you subject your body and your life to these things that I'm going to read about? Why would you do that? So he carries on listing a whole lot of different people and the faith exploits and how they've trusted God. And then in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. How we need that. Became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Why? Refusing to accept release. In other words, refusing to deny God and be released so that they might rise again to a better life. See the hope. They held on to their belief because there's a better life coming. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. That's the basis for the prosperity gospel, right? That verse right there. This is the saints of old. Go and read. Be encouraged when you're mistreated, when you feel destitute. God, I've got nothing. I've left my inheritance to follow you. They mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, though commanded through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, God wanted to rescue us as well. He wanted us as part of his plan as well. And then verse 12, and here's where you can start to get really excited. Therefore, since we, he's talking to the Hebrews, but it applies to us. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Since these men and women who have stood in faith and been tortured and mistreated and been sawn in two and stoned and put in prison, since they have not given up their faith and have clung to a hope of a future kingdom, since they are the witnesses standing around us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now that's a lot more compelling than saying don't sin because it's bad. <laughs> don't sin because dad's not going to be happy with you. 
This is compelling. Don't teach your kids moralism. Teach them the word of God that men and women have faced the greatest trials you can imagine and said, I don't care. I'm holding on for all my life. Kill me. Because I have a hope. And it's burning inside of me. Looking to Jesus. Even Jesus had this this hope in front of him. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. This is what we need to know, believers, when it comes to our sins and our weakness. So here's the big idea, just in case you forgot, because I haven't been laboring it quite enough. Where we place our faith profoundly affects our hope. Where you place your faith profoundly affects your hope. And those of you who are believers this morning, here's my concern. I'm concerned that I think many, many Christians don't have a handle on what we actually believe. I don't think we know. I think we throw words like gospel around, often without deeply grappling with what does it mean in my life? What is this change? What has changed in me because of this? We say things, this is like, this is heresy. We say things like, this is, this is who God is to me, as if the God of the universe, the creator of all things, omniscient God, is somehow beholden to your opinion of him, as if he cares We come to Scripture, and Scripture informs us about God. My concern is that we're constructing idols in our mind, these gods of our own construct. We take our favorite bits of God and our favorite bits of Western culture and a little bit of New Age, you know, and like mindfulness, and and we we, we merge it all together, and we make this God that we worship. And then when when our God, our, our demigod, our idol God, when he doesn't fulfill what he says he's going to fulfill, we then turn to the real God and go, why? Where are you? See, when we don't properly wrestle with what we believe, we end up with this vague, watered-down, uncertain God. And then, this God that we don't understand, how can He lead us to a secure hope? We have this vague, watered-down, uncertain hope. You go and ask a Christian, what are you hoping for? What gets you through the dark nights? What gets you through the trials? What gets you through the temptations? Oh, well, uh, I'm kind of, uh, oh, you know, there's this heaven place, and I don't know much about it, but man, I'm excited, eh? It's going to be great. And we've got this vague, nebulous hope. How's that going to sustain us? So let me, let me just, in the next, however long I've got, Let's do three quick things. I want, the first thing I want to do is I want to ask us all, where do you place your faith? If faith leads to hope and we want hope, how do we, where do we place our hope? I'm so chuffed that, Ollie, as you got up, you shared that Psalm 1. It's, a, it's an incredible psalm, and the metaphor in there is so beautiful. Go and pray that over different people that you know. God, root them. Make them, make them trees that bear fruit in season. In all seasons, they're like by the river. It doesn't matter. Bring the droughts. I've got water. This water's flowing. This river's coming, but I had this metaphor in my notes that tending to faith in our lives in many ways automatically tends 
In other words, you know what I mean by tens, caring for. So when we care for faith or look after faith in our life, in many ways it automatically tends to hope. Our hope follows. And here's the Psalm 1, like a tree. When you tend to the roots of a tree and you make sure that a tree is, is healthy in its root system and that it's being watered and it's, it's getting care, the fruit bearing takes care of itself. It produces fruit without big questions and deliberation. The, the roots are what produce the fruit. And yes, there might still be, I'm going to go into a farming metaphor because that's where I grew up, but there might still be fruit flies or, or aphids. If those of you have roses, you know that's the curse of roses is the aphids. Or maybe there's like there's blight on your fruit. And maybe those are the seasons where we go through hopelessness and we feel like, God, where are you? And there's fruit flies busy attacking the fruit on our tree. But when the root of the matter is secure, we can rest assured that over the long haul of our lives, fruitfulness will prevail. We will produce godly fruit over the course of our lives if the roots are tended to. And so goes faith and hope. When we tend to faith and we tend to what do I actually believe and what do I actually put my trust and my belief, what is on my table of truth, hope follows. Encouragement follows. All right, we're going to turn to Hebrews 6. So go there with me. I actually want you to follow if you've got a Bible. This thing makes us very lazy. The screen behind me. Get your Bibles. Find out where it is in your Bibles so that you know when you go to Hebrews, it's not like just after Genesis. <clears throat> Talking about Abraham again in, in chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear. Like hashtag God problems. You know? Who do I swear by? There's no, there's no one greater to swear by. He swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, we should learn that phrase, the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in, number one, which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So we're asking this question, where do we place our faith? And I want to answer in God. We place our faith in this God who's an unchanging God in person and in practice. And we so need to be reminded of this God in verse 17, the God who desires to show more convincingly to the heirs. Just think about how much, how grace laden that statement is. God himself, he, he, he wants to convince you 
He wants to reason with you. Let me just, let me just stop. God himself, God, wants to convince you, me. That's a grace-laden statement right there. It's beautiful. That God that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. That sobers me, that line. Sometimes I think my purpose is, is too large and I need to be reminded of where I am in the story of God. How he sustained people long before me and long after me. They're going to be sustained. That I'm not going to change the world that God's going to keep changing the world through His purposes and plans, it, it does sober me, but it also deeply secures me that I'm part of this, this large unfolding story. But, but really, the story here is not me this, or you. The story here is the nature of God. And God gives a double assurance that He's going to keep to His promise. The promise that He made to Abraham and then to the Hebrews and then that He's making to us. What's the result of this promise verse 18 and 20 we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast in the faith are you wavering this morning first years that are here with us this morning man you are at a critical junction i want to speak to you you are at such a pivotal moment of your lives don't just think I'm going to party for three or four or five or six months and I'll just come back to God and he's going to forgive me then yes of course he will but don't do it you're being dumb in the nicest possible way, and welcome. But, but you're being dumb. Don't do it. Don't think I'll just, I'll just you know, my folks are made me go to church. I'm not going to go to church for a year, and then I'm just going to slot back in somewhere. Don't do it. You, 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 you're crazy. This is the, we fled. We fled for refuge. Listen to the words. We have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That's that beautiful song we were singing this morning. My hope is found in nothing less than Jesus Christ and, and righteousness. I dare not trust the, the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. And then later on, it, it speaks about the anchor that holds within the veil. And then there's this language here in, in Hebrews that speaks about the, the, inner, the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. And this language is, is tabernacle metaphor. That was only the high priest could go in there. And even he had to have bells tied around his tunic so that if he died, if he did something wrong in there, he had a rope and, and these bells. And when the, when the bells didn't ring for long enough, they used to pull him out by the rope. This is the high place that suddenly Hebrews is saying, you can go there. Jesus has torn the curtain. He said, come with me into the inner place. I want you to come and worship the Father here. You are now pure and clean before me. You are righteous. Where do you place your faith? Let me ask you this. What, what do you think about God? Who do you think he is? Tozer says, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. Bad paraphrase, but that's something like it. Are you, let me ask you some practical questions. Are you, are you reading? Are you reading the Word of God? This is what Romans 10 says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Is this your only food? 
Church coming on a Sunday, hoping that I, I had a good week and I put something half decent together. Is this your only food? Or are you reading, engaging with the Word of God day after day, year after year, a habit in your life? Because faith comes by hearing. We believe what we place on the table of truth comes by hearing, and not just hearing YouTube and preachers, hearing from the Word of God which is why the scripture is so pivotal for us here week after week. And I'm not just preaching my best five points every week. The word of God. Are you thinking? I did a sermon on this at the end of last year, the thinking Christian. Are we engaging our minds, unafraid to ask big questions, unafraid to think, God, show me more of you. Are we grappling with things? Not just, oh yeah, it's the good news. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does righteousness mean? What does justification mean? What does it mean that one day there's going to be a judgment and I'm going to be there and I'm going to stand there and he's going to say, just, instead of guilty. It's incredible, these truths. Worship is a beautiful way for us to reaffirm these truths in our hearts. When you come, guys, can I encourage you, when you come and worship, put your preferences aside. Honestly, it's going to matter nothing whether we repeat the song too many times or we don't repeat it enough or they don't sing in the key that you can sing it in. For goodness sake, worship God. Read the words and lift your soul and say, God, remind me of these truths because I'm leaky and they keep falling out all over the place as I walk through my week. Remind me of your truths, God. Worship is a beautiful place for that. It's not for you to sit on the side with your, with your scoreboard like gymnastics, you know, and you hold up, uh, that was a five today. Yeah, and the preacher was like a three, way too aggressive, mean to the first years. <laughs> you know? Who cares? Let me ask you, what's your plan to deepen your faith? What are you doing to deepen your faith? Are you just hoping that as time passes, I, I deal with this all the time. This is one of the ones I see most commonly. I speak about it all the time. There is no like, hey, you get saved, you just let 40 years pass, and somehow through a process of osmosis, you mature. Some, are, some people are saved for 40, 50, 60 years, and they, they're less mature than someone who's been saved for two years. Because it's not simply just the passing, the passage of time. If that's your plan, eh, bad plan. Bad plan. How are, you, how are you building your faith? Are you just relying on, on charismatic experience? And flashes of the Holy Spirit to, to give you this divine revelation. So you're just like lazy the whole time. You just don't do anything in the Word of God. And then, you know, you go to like a soaking session. And that's where like you, and now you've got like this revelation. And I'm for some of that, right? You know me. I'm charismatic. I want to, in my quiet times, I'm before God. I'm saying, Father, fill me with your Spirit. Fill me again. I need more of you. But that's not, that's not where My revelation comes from, it's not what I build my life upon. I build my life upon the Word of God. That's it. It's not a complex plan, but it's the only plan. Are you building your life on the Word of God? I asked you this question when I read Hebrews 11. How did they do it? How did they face death being sawn in half? These crazy things, how, how did they face it? Let me tell you one thing I know for sure. They faced it with great faith and with great hope. They didn't have some wavering, shaky faith, unsure about what God was going to save them to, and they kind of thought, you know what, I'm just going to take my chances and get sawn in, hope, uh, sawn in half and, and hope that, that you know, this kind of vague idea of what I think of God is actually going to be true. They knew. There was a conviction in their hearts. And so they hoped. They hoped with everything inside of them because their belief 
was so certain. So if that's where we place our faith, let me ask you secondly, where do we place our hope? What does this mean? What does this mean about hope? What it means is that hope is only sure when it's able to rest on something that is sure. If you rest your hope on something uncertain, your hope is uncertain. So let's go back to the the metaphor of the father taking his boy or his girl to cricket. If the father has a track record of not following through on his promises, and and the son or the daughter's heard 20 times before, tomorrow we're going to cricket, or tomorrow we're doing this, or this is the big thing that I'm going to take you for, and 19 times it hasn't materialized, how does he hear those words? Does it induce jumping up and down hope? No, it induces cynicism. I think I'll, I think I'll just wait and see. Let's just, maybe, the, maybe the mum rushes over and says, you know, Dad, you know, you know, just, just wait and see. Tries to protect him. This, this is how our relationship works. If, if our hope is on something sure, we have sure hope. If our faith is in something sure, we have sure hope. If it's on something uncertain, we have uncertain hope. So the question is then, where do you place your hope? Here's some, let's, let's talk a little bit practically. Let's talk about these three tables again, and let's think about some practical outflows, right? So here's some, here's some truths of the Word of God. God loves and cares for me. We like, we're 101 here, basics, okay? God loves and cares for me, and all things that he does, all things that he does work together for my good. Now, where do you place that? Which table? I'm not so sure. Had some experiences. This thing happened in my life. This person died. This disease, this whatever it might be. I had bankruptcy. Where do you place? God loves me. He's good. He's for me. And everything that happens is ultimately going to be worked for my good because I love him. Okay, now you, you placed something in your mind on a table. Maybe this one. God created and sustained all things by the word of his mouth. He calls out the stars, names them. He holds the universe in equilibrium. Where do you put it? Not where do you tell your friends you put it, like your depart. This one. I stand... Righteous and justified before God because of what Jesus has done. You see, if we place these things on the table of truth, like really on the table of truth, it profoundly impacts the hope that we have. If we believe that God is good and that no matter what happens in my life, He is able to turn it into good so that at the end of my life, I would look back and say, I would have chosen that. If we get that and believe that to the depth of our being, it profoundly impacts the hope that we have in God. Right? Anyone an amen? Anybody? I mean, does this this ring true? If we believe that God sustains all things by the word of his mouth, and that he creates life itself just by going and, and breathing in life. If we believe that, the next time that we're whining about our finances, our wife should say, stop! Have you forgotten who God is? Have you forgotten that he can sustain you and hold you and carry you? 
Now, this is where this linked so interesting, interestingly back for me into Matthew chapter 6, because the big thing I was going after on that day was treasures and anxiety. And I didn't just pull those out of a hat. That's actually what the text deals with, treasures and anxiety. So think about this statement by John Piper. If our future is not secured and satisfied by God, then we are going to be excessively anxious. So you don't believe that God has your future, man, you should be anxious, right? This results either in paralyzing fear or in self-managed, greedy control. Anxiety, treasures. Either it leads us to paralyzing fear, I'm so anxious, I'm so anxious, or it leads us to, I've got to get more and more treasures, more and more treasures, because God might not look after me, so I've got to look after myself, right? We end up thinking about ourselves, our future, our problems, our potential, and that keeps us from loving. So both of those scenarios lead to us thinking predominantly about ourselves. So what about if these statements are on the unsure table or the, the false table? If God doesn't stand, if we don't stand righteous before God and justified by Jesus, well, what does that lead to? It leads to a whole lot of anxious concern and trying to work our way closer and closer to God. And when we sin, oh my goodness, I've sinned, I've dropped the ball, God's not going to love me anymore, He hates me, I've got to work my way back up, back up, back up the ladder. Right? It leads to anxiety. You can, you can see it. I mean, you can go through these things in your mind and you could think of so many different scenarios. And Ollie said this so beautifully last week. The evil one, the devil, goes after every time he goes after our faith. If he can get our faith, if he can lie enough to us and make us believe lies either about ourselves or about God, it leads to hopelessness. That's what hopelessness is for Christians. When we stop believing what God has said about himself. We stop believing what he says. And the devil sells lies like cheap lemonade on every street corner. It's what he's good at. It's what he does. The master of deception. Right, let's end here. Where does this leave you this morning? Well, it leaves me imploring us to look again and tend to our faith. I'm asking you believers, um, those, those of us with rust around this area, those of us with laziness around this area, I'm just hoping this morning, I'm just saying, God, shake us, encourage us, let us, I don't want anyone to leave this place feeling condemned, but I want you to be shaken, saying, am I looking at the word of God and tending to the beliefs? What do I actually believe? No one else can do this for you. Not a teacher. JB, your groups are unbelievable, but you know you can't do this in the lives of people going into those groups. You guys going into those groups, they're an incredible blessing to us. Use them. You need to take them and digest it. I implore you, there's another way of looking at it, examine the areas of hopelessness in your life. Where do you feel hopeless? Is it when you sin? Is it when you face financial difficulty? What are the things that induce hopelessness in your life. And I want to ask you, are they caused by a faulty view of God? Is your financial concern because you don't believe actually that God can care for you? Is your anxiety around sin actually more about the fact that you haven't understood that God has accepted you, justified you in all your sin? That he didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick?
Ollie so vulnerably shared with us last week about reaching a place where he felt so hopeless. And I know, I didn't speak with you before, but I know that if I come and ask you, anyone who's, who's facing those kind of things, in some way or other, we've lost sight of God. We've lost sight of, of who God is and that He's really good, which is why we need to sing, You are good, you are good, and repeat it so many times because it doesn't get into our heads. So that's why charismatics repeat songs a lot of times, you see. It's method in the madness. I want to finish by reading Romans 8. And I want to let this scripture, I know we've read a lot of scripture today, and they're all incredible texts. But I want to read Romans 8 and let it ring in our ears as we come and take communion this morning. And we're going to close off with a, with a song after that. But this is what it says in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, he employs exactly the same argument as Matthew 6. The greater to the lesser. He gives life. He can sustain life. If he gave his own son, Jesus, the greater, how much more will he not graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You know that scripture says that the devil stands and accuses us day and night God, you haven't seen what Paul did. God, you don't know. He, I saw Paul. Paul thought this. Paul was doing this. Paul, Paul, Paul. And the devil's standing and accusing me all day long. And you know what he tries and does? He's got like this piggy bank, right? And this piggy bank, he comes to you with this piggy bank and he says, Nathan, Nathan, I saw that sin. Pay up. Pay up. And when you don't follow Christ, well, you have to pay up. You have to because it's the wages of sin is death. You've got to pay. And now, now he comes to me and he says, come pay up. And, and, and we still, in our, in our early Christian lives, we're still feeling insecure. And so we're like, oh, we're like, oh, I feel all condemned. I feel all guilty. I better put some money in the piggy bank. Actually, we're allowed to tell him, Satan, take your piggy bank and out with you. It's paid. It's done. You can accuse all you want, but I know the sins that I have. And Christ knows them even more than me. And he says, justified, redeemed. It's incredible. Sorry, I get excited when I... Read some of these scriptures, but it's so beautiful. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is he bringing a charge against you this morning? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And then more than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. So you've got the devil shouting accusations and you've got Jesus saying, Father, hold them. I intercede for them. And he's interceding for us now. It's incredible. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now I want you to think Hebrews 11 and everything they went through. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. The no is to answer who shall separate us from the love of God. Shall tribulation or distress? No. None of these things. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure. See the faith? 
See what he believes? I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, just in case he missed anything in his list, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We take that and we place it on the table of truth. We slam it down on the table of truth and we say, Father, thank you. Thank you. Come on, let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come together as a body this morning and we hear your word, I want to ask, Lord, that that word would be driven into our hearts like a stake going down, Father, where we need to be challenged. Come and challenge us, Father. If your word rebukes us this morning, we say, Lord, we accept that you discipline those that you love. I pray that your word would come and encourage us this morning and lift us up. Those of us who feel down and feel hopeless, would we see that there's a way out, that we can place our trust in you, that you are good and that you lead us to being a tree that bears fruit. Lord, there's, there's a hundred other things that I could have spoken about this morning. There's another whole ton of angles on this. I just want to ask that by your Holy Spirit, you come and meet each of us where we're at. Lord, you know everything going on inside of us. Where we've been, what we've done, what our thoughts are, what our weaknesses are, what our sins are. And you love us completely and know us completely. And so I ask in that vein that the one who knows us completely would come and use this word to bring fruit in our lives. Please, God, we don't want to gather for gathering's sake. We don't want to meet for meeting's sake. We want to meet because we believe that you can change us. You can work in us. You can change our marriages. You can change our parenting. You can change the things that we are struggling with. In your wonderful name, we ask these things.